Globally, COVID-19 has infected nearly 4 million people. Tragically, around 300,000 have died. Millions have lost their jobs. Airlines and businesses have gone to the wall. Economists believe we are on the edge of a deep recession. And we are just trying to make sense of these moments. What's next? What does the future hold? And can we know? Is there any hope? Good evening and welcome to part two of Hope Awakens, brought to you by the Hope Channel. I'm Rebecca Bergen, one of your hosts for this amazing series of presentations by John Bradshaw. We're so glad to have you joining us tonight. Last night we had people joining us from all over the South Pacific, from Fiji to New Zealand, the Cook Islands, PNG and right across Australia. We'd love to hear from you. Where are you watching from right now? Leave it in the comment section below. Whether you're on Facebook or YouTube or the Hope Channel website, we'd love to hear from you. Now, in case you haven't registered, you can do so on our website, hopeawakens.com.au. And you'll get access to previous episodes, great resources, and you can ask questions and much more. As we promised you last night, right before we hand over to John, Robbie and Gary will be answering some of your questions. Obviously, we won't have time to answer all the questions, but if yours is not answered during the program, someone will be in touch with answers to your questions. Great to have you here with me tonight, Robbie. Do we have any questions tonight? Yes, Rebecca, we've got three questions tonight. The first question is asking, what does Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 mean? Well, this is what the text says. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. This is a great question because, you know, many people think that this verse means that people will somehow get smarter and smarter as time goes on and that perhaps technology will grow exponentially. And while I'm sure that that may be the case, this verse is speaking more to the idea that the knowledge of the book of Daniel will increase as time moves on and it will be especially understood in the time of the end. Now, you won't want to miss the upcoming programs in this series, Hope Awakens, because John is going to be helping us understand the book of Daniel as it contains very specific predictions regarding our time. Now, our next question is asking, could we explain Luke chapter 21, verse 34? This verse reads this way, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come to you unexpectedly. Now, we saw in last night's presentation that John shared that this chapter, Luke 21, is dealing with the signs we will see as we get closer to that return Jesus talked about. That's what this day is referring to in the verse, the day of Jesus' return. So this verse is basically telling us to get our priorities straight. Otherwise, we won't be prepared for that return. I hope that helps. Now, our last question is, does the Bible have other signs of the end other than what John Bradshaw has shown? Absolutely. The Bible is filled with amazing signs and predictions. Now, John will be sharing more of these signs, especially some of the incredible predictions found in the books of Daniel and Revelation that clearly show that we are near the end. So stay tuned to Hope Awakens.
Thanks, Rebecca. All right. So let's go straight to John Bradshaw for tonight's topic, Hope Awakens, where he'll be giving us an insight into the connection between patterns and hope. Our subject tonight, Hope Awakens. I want to pray with you before we go any further. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, bless us as we open the Bible. Bless us as we consult you. Guide us in your way and give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with you this evening by taking a tiger by the tail. Now, I've not actually done that myself, but I did once take a lion by the tail. Two of them, in fact. That might be a story for another day. That was quite a moment. But let's think about this thing for a moment. You see this? And you know it's a tiger. Look, it's not a water buffalo. It's not a warthog. It's not an oak tree. That is a tiger. Tell me how you know that. Because you see the pattern and you say, that's a tiger because it just is. Okay, now this, this is a, tell me, a giraffe. Right. How do you know that? Because you'd recognize that pattern anywhere. That is absolutely a giraffe. Now, I know you think I'm getting tricky with you here, but hang in there with me. What's this? Okay, no prizes for knowing that that is a zebra. It's that pattern, isn't it? You know, it's not a skunk or a ground squirrel. They have stripes too. But that pattern, that zebra pattern gives it away. A pine cone has a pattern. It's intricate. Look at this. It is a nautilus, a beautiful. Oh, no, hold on. That's not a nautilus. That's a cabbage. Try, try, try eating a nautilus. It'll be a little bit different. Cabbage, distinct pattern. Pardon me, I should be able to tell one from the other. Ah, now that's a cabbage. Kidding. That's a nautilus, no doubt about it. Beautiful. They all have patterns, even cabbages. You'll find patterns in leaves. You'll find a pattern in a peacock's tail. Take a look at this. Beautiful. You'll find patterns in a beehive. Patterns are everywhere. A man on a game show in 1994 won the equivalent of almost $300,000 in today's money because he figured out the various light patterns on the game's prize board. The show was called Press Your Luck. He followed the pattern he figured out, just stuck with it religiously, and he won big. I'm going to show you a pattern tonight, and you'll win big. As we continue with Revelation today, Hope Awakens. When you see a pattern emerging, developing, you know it suggests something to you. You see ripples in the sand and you say, the wind has been blowing. We are going to see a pattern outlined that suggests something profoundly important to us. Now, I mentioned last night, and of course we know this well, we are living in unprecedented times. The coronavirus that continues to wreak havoc in this world, and in some places far more than others, caused us to ask big questions. We know that life is going to get back to normal. We hope sooner rather than later, but we're not even sure what normal is going to be. Maybe there'll be a new normal. You've heard that millions of jobs have been lost in the United States and most every country is experiencing something similar. 17,000 jobs were lost in dental offices in March alone. That was March. And in March, another 12,000 jobs at doctor's offices. Hopefully, most of these are temporary losses. So many other examples I could give you. We're wondering if this is just another blip on the radar. But when we looked last night, we saw that what we're witnessing in the world today indicates we are seeing the fulfillment of the signs spoken of long ago by a Middle Eastern teacher. Signs that he said were indicators we're getting near the end of this world's history. 
you'd almost have to be willing not to see the signs to not see them. Now, this isn't a prediction as to how much longer planet Earth has, but we know that time is getting much shorter. And so we are looking for hope, for lasting hope. We're trying to navigate this stormy sea, especially as people are faced with challenges they've never really had to deal with. If you can hardly go out of your home, that's frustrating. If you've lost your job, what happens next? You know, even rates of domestic violence are going up. We understand that communities are trying to prevent the spread of a disease that's claimed a lot of lives. I want to look at history with you because tonight we are going to anchor our studies to history. We're going to see a pattern in history, a pattern suggesting that there is a way forward for society today. Now, we both know that nations and kingdoms have come and gone. Just over a 100 years ago, the British Empire governed almost a quarter of the world's people. It was said that the sun never set on the British Empire. Today, the United Kingdom is a great nation, but the British Empire has nothing like that sort of influence. When Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997, it was said that was the end of the empire. A couple of years ago, I was in Sarajevo in the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Fascinating place. It was in Sarajevo that the event took place in 1914 that gave rise to World War I. A fellow named Gavrilo Princip shot and killed Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. He did it right there where the Latin bridge meets the street, right by that building that's pink on top. I've stood in that spot, a historic place. That there was an Austro-Hungarian empire comes as a surprise to a lot of people who haven't read that chapter in the history books. No disrespect intended, but today you wouldn't normally think of either Austria or Hungary as guiding an empire, but that's what it was. Powerful in Central and Eastern Europe for more than 50 years. Rome was once a mighty empire that stretched basically from the south of Scotland or a little beyond further south in the northwest all the way through Europe and the Mediterranean. It was colossal and it was powerful. But today, people visit Rome to see ruins of a once mighty empire. Seems impossible that Rome would cease to be powerful but that's how history went. The Mongolian Empire was once huge. It extended from the Sea of Japan over there in the east all the way across Eastern Europe out there in the west. Genghis Khan, or Chinggis Khan, as they call him in Mongolia today, was feared, a mighty ruler. Marco Polo wrote about the wealth of the Mongol Empire. But today, not an empire. Germany, you know, was once a collection of independent states. But then those states united into what is essentially Germany today. Keep in mind. Not long ago, there was a country called East Germany. No longer. Some of us remember well the Soviet Union. In 1991, it had a population of almost 300 million people. Armenia and Georgia and Latvia and Moldova and many other countries were once folded into this colossus. But there have been big changes. So what's behind the rise and fall of nations? And what can we learn from this that would speak to us where we are today? Let's go to the Bible, where we will see some remarkable details. You are going to see a guiding hand in history like you might never have seen before. Now, I'm aware the Bible makes some incredible claims. Is it a trustworthy book? Just the idea that there is a God, that's a big concept. This book says that one day we'll be reunited with our departed loved ones. You read in this book, There'll be a day when there'll be no more death and no more sorrow. Those are enormous claims. Does it make sense to trust a God you've never seen? 
Imagine with me if it did. Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created. God declared the world was very good. You know, there's a lot about the world today that's good or great even. But there's a lot of things about it that you would not describe as very good. The Bible, it's made up of 66 books, almost 1,200 chapters, more than 31,000 verses. It's said to be the Word of God. If what the Bible says is true, everlasting life, heaven, no more tears, that would be great. But why would we think that we should consult the Bible, especially at a time like this? This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, listen, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Notice what God says. He says, one of the reasons you can trust me is that I tell you things that are going to happen before they happen. When they happen, God says your ability to trust me ought to increase. So, How many things has God predicted that have actually happened? And we are looking at this, I believe, uh, critically. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That's God predicting the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's precisely what happened. In Matthew 2, wise men came from the east. They asked where they would find the Messiah. And the Bible says they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for thus it is written by the prophet, but unto you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew chapter 2. God predicted it hundreds of years before. It happened just as he said it would. In Isaiah chapter 7, 14, the Bible said Jesus would be born of a virgin. That's what happened. God promised Jacob a son. What God promised occurred. Through Noah, God told the people living in the world, the earth would be, a dis- would be destroyed by a flood. That's what happened. Hosea 11, verse 1 said the Messiah would go into Egypt. You might remember not long after he was born, Jesus' parents took him to Egypt. That's recorded in Matthew 2. God said there'd be a forerunner prior to Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist was that person. Isaiah said Messiah would be despised and rejected. He was certainly that. The Bible predicted Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Look at this in Zechariah chapter 11. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, Give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely prince that set on me, or that they set on me. You know, it goes on and says, I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Predicted and fulfilled. Psalm 22:15 said years before the event, the Messiah would suffer thirst as he hung on a cross. That's what happened. One verse later, God said the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Same chapter, they cast lots for Jesus' clothing. There are many others. All the way down to Psalm 22, 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words were repeated by Jesus in Matthew 27. There's so much more. You start to add these up and you realize 
we might just be talking about a reliable document. Either the Bible is worth consulting or it isn't. Could anyone get that lucky? Lucky enough to write a book that contains oodles of predictions and each one of those predictions comes to pass? Either this is the most incredible stroke of luck in history or maybe the Bible is worth looking at. Let me suggest something to you. In a time where the world is challenged, really challenged. This isn't the only challenge we've ever had, but this is a unique challenge. At a time like that, don't you think you owe it to yourself to stop and say, it's the world's best-selling book. It has undergirded nations and movements and all kinds of people for hundreds and thousands of years. Don't you think it's time to look into this book and see what it says? I want to share with you a passage of the Bible that makes the point like no other. It's found in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. Let me give you some background. The book introduces us to a young man named Daniel who grew up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was attacked by Babylon six centuries before the birth of Jesus, and Daniel and many others was captured and taken into slavery in Babylon. While he was in Babylon, he impressed the king so much that he and three of his close friends were made advisors to the king. They were captives, but they were part of the king's inner circle. There's a lesson here. You don't have to be restricted by your station in life. No matter where you were born, no matter who your parents are, no matter what side of the tracks you lived on, God can bless your life, use you, elevate you, lift you up, promote you. He can do that in your life. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2 as we do. I'd like you to keep in mind just what we're doing. We are finding out if in this time of real concern in our world, whether or not there is something we can trust, and if there's a reason, you can find hope. You know, just after 9-11, my wife and I, and our baby boy at the time, were flying from North Carolina, where we lived at that time, to California. We had a layover in Minneapolis-St. Paul and uh, boarded an Airbus, and that's significant, an Airbus for the flights to our final destination. Now, if you're familiar with those planes, you'll be aware that they can make a weird noise when they're taxiing. It's a, it's a hydraulic noise. I could demonstrate for you, but it's better that I don't. So we're taxiing out before takeoff when passengers start pressing their call buttons all over the cabin of the plane. People were afraid that the sound the plane was making meant that the plane was in trouble or that we were all going to be in trouble. Remember, right after 9-11. So the pilot comes on and assures us we're okay. Then because people were so concerned, still, he brought out a mechanic to the plane and the mechanic gave it a thorough going over. The pilot comes back on and tells us everything's fine. But 25 passengers insisted they be unloaded. There was a horrendous delay. But you know, the pilot had assured us the plane was safe. My faith was in him. If he was willing to fly, if he thought it was safe, I was okay with that. He had a family to get home to. He was not about to endanger himself or us. In my mind, as long as that pilot knew what he was doing, I was happy. In the next few minutes, you're going to find out that there is someone who knows what he's doing. Someone that you can trust. Daniel 2, we're starting in verse 1. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, 
Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. He explained to them he'd had an impressive dream and he wanted them to tell him what it was and what it meant. Dreams were important to ancient kings because they believed the gods revealed their will through dreams. Let's read on. Daniel 2, verses 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation, which, of course, was quite a choice. It's fascinating, you know. Many people want to know the future, and they consult palm readers and mediums and fortune tellers and psychics who cannot read the future at all. I want to know where all the psychics were before the coronavirus, telling us there's a bad virus coming, you ought to keep apart. That's not God's way of doing business. You certainly don't need a psychic or horoscopes, which are making something of a comeback, mystifies me, or a spirit medium to give you guidance. Let's keep looking here because we are going to find some remarkable guidance and we're going to see a pattern crystal clear. These Babylonian wise men probably were practiced in the art of astrology, predicting the future based on the movement of the stars. They most likely practiced extispacy. That's almost certain. Where they'd inspect the internal organs of slaughtered animals and check those organs for patterns and certain anomalies and then read the future based on that. No surprise, they weren't able to interpret the king's dream. So they said to Nebuchadnezzar, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. And oh yeah, they were, they were stalling for time. You and I would have done the same. The king says in verse nine, if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, and they said something revealing. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this reason, the king was very angry, very furious gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the problem for Daniel was that he and his friends were considered to be among the wise men of Babylon. Not because they were magicians and fortune tellers, but because they'd proven themselves in Daniel chapter 1 when they first arrived in Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar sentenced the wise men to death, Daniel, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were implicated. Their lives were on the line too. So they did what everyone should do when confronted with a crisis like this. 
what they do? They prayed. And look what happened. Daniel 2.17, it says this. Then Daniel went to his house, <clears throat> excuse me, and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. God answered their prayer. I want to encourage you to get in the habit of praying, of talking with God. Prayer means you're never isolated. You're never alone. It means that God is willing to be close to you. And people need that. Think about this. The universe is vast. The Milky Way galaxy is at least 100,000 light years across. If you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, take 100,000 years to get across. It's huge. And the Milky Way is just one of billions of galaxies that exist. The universe is so vast. Yet when Daniel and his friends prayed, the God who made it all heard them and answered their prayer. How good is that? God reveals the king's dream to Daniel and Daniel comes to the fabulous courts of the planet's greatest monarch and reveals his dream to him. This is what he says. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then... The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel said, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Notice what he said, we, not me, we. That would be me and God. Imagine this king's astonishment as Daniel told him what his dream was. The lights would have come on as he remembered. And now Daniel's about to tell the king what the dream meant. We're tracing history here and you are going to see an amazing pattern emerge. Remember those patterns? Honeycombs and leaves and cabbages and and, and what else we have? Nautilus shells and you name it. We're about to see a pattern right now. Let's look at that dream. Daniel 2.37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. The kingdom of gold was Babylon, which ruled in the earth as a mighty city from 605 B.C. down to 539 B.C. It was a big city, bigger than Rome or Athens, huge, mighty. A letter from Nebuchadnezzar said of Babylon that the whole earth was prostrated Babylon's feet. He wrote, Babylon, the city which is the delight of my eyes, which I have glorified, may it last forever. But for all that, 
Babylon was going to fall. Verse 39. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. This was the kingdom of Medo-Persia, a joint affair, the Medes and the Persians, which ruled from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. It was represented by the chest and arms of silver. I want you to notice something. The Bible is interpreting itself. We're not guessing what it means. The Bible points us to history, and later in Daniel, it says these very kingdoms by name. Verse 39 again, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. The third kingdom of brass was the next world ruling power, Greece, which ruled from 331 to 168 under Alexander the Great. Greece conquered the world. Well, what then? This is Daniel 240. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Vanquished by the armies of Rome, depicted in Nebuchadnezzar's dream by legs of iron. Historians refer to Rome as the Iron Kingdom. Where do you think they got that? Rome would rule until almost 500 AD, and I want you to keep something in mind as we see a pattern emerge, an unmistakable pattern, as unmistakable as stripes on a zebra or a tiger. All of this was predicted 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and we've seen it unfold exactly as God said it would. He predicted the rise of four world ruling kingdoms, not five, not three, not eight. And what God predicted came to pass. I'm going to suggest to you that we have identified a pattern. God said four kingdoms, four kingdoms rose. So far, so good. But let's turn good into stunning. Let's push it a little further. You ready? Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be, what's that word? Divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. God says this last kingdom of Rome won't be conquered, it will divide. So what happened to Rome? Well, it wasn't conquered. Rather than being overthrown by another nation, it was repeatedly attacked by barbarian tribes and then kind of imploded. Rome ended up dividing into ten nations many of which became the nations of Europe that we recognize today. Notice what the prophet went on to say. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. Rome was finally and irrevocably divided in 476 AD. God said Rome would divide into 10 nations, saying that after the legs of iron, Rome, there would be feet of iron and clay. Those 10 toes represent the 10 divisions into which Rome fell. We're seeing a pattern. Come on now, stay with me. Keep looking. Notice, God says, although people will again try to reunite the Roman Empire, it's never going to happen. They will not adhere to one another. 
Over the years, many have tried and they've all failed. Napoleon tried to reunite the Roman Empire and he failed. Kaiser Wilhelm and others, all on a quest to reunite Europe. You know that Queen Victoria was known as the grandmother of Europe. King Christian IX of Denmark was known as the father-in-law of Europe. Eight European monarchs were grandchildren of one or the other of those two. But the Bible said that the nations of Europe would not adhere to one another. They wouldn't cleave. They wouldn't stick back together. So look what's happening in Europe today. The Eurozone is in disarray. There's disunity. We've had Brexit. God said they shall not cleave or adhere to one another. Isn't that fascinating? Now, I know a fellow, a friend of mine, whose grandfather was in the German army during World War II. As a committed Christian, life in the German military was difficult for this man. But in spite of frequent ridicule and antagonism, he maintained his faith in God and his belief that the Bible was truly God's word. His name was Franz Hasel. One day, he was invited by a superior officer to bring his Bible to a morning meeting. He was surprised to find two other officers present at that meeting, including a lieutenant who had been hostile to Franz and his faith in God. During their discussion, Franz took the opportunity to ask the gentleman a few questions of his own. Remembering that in civilian life, the captain had been a history professor. So Franz asked him, could I check the historical accuracy of some of the Bible's prophecies? The captain was gracious and said, yes, go right ahead. While the men listened in rapt attention, Franz detailed the prophecy from Daniel 2 and interpreted it for the German army officers, explaining from history that after Babylon came the kingdoms of Medo-Persia, Greece, then the Iron Monarchy of Rome. The former history professor was impressed. Everything is accurate, he said. I've never heard anything so amazing in my life. But then Franz explained the rest of the dream. He actually took his life in his hands when he explained to them that the ten toes on the feet of the image represented the ten nations into which the Roman Empire dissolved. He explained they wouldn't come back together. By now, these men were far from Germany. In fact, They were so far from home that they had crossed the border into Asia. Franz explained to his superiors that in spite of the best efforts on the part of military and political leaders, the divided Roman Empire could never be brought back together. In other words, Franz told them, the Bible makes clear that Hitler is doomed to fail. And if Hitler was going to fail, then Franz's company over a thousand miles from home, right out there on the Russian front, would certainly fail too. They were doomed. If what he was saying was true, the likelihood of any one of those men in that room that morning ever making it home was extremely remote. For France to even suggest that Hitler might not win the war was a punishable offense. It was treasonous. But based on that pattern we've seen in the Bible, 
the military men knew they were involved in plans for the world far greater than the plans of Adolf Hitler. They realized that based on what they'd recognized to be true from the Bible, they were involved in the outworking of the purposes of God himself. Franz chose his words very carefully. Sir, he said, the Bible's predictions have been proved accurate again and again. He might have been thinking of Micah and the, and the prediction that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He might have been thinking of Hosea and the prophecy that said the Messiah would go to Egypt. He might have been thinking of Psalm 22 where it predicted Jesus would cry out on the cross. He might have been thinking of where the Bible said in the Old Testament, Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. He might have been thinking about Isaiah saying that Jesus would be despised and rejected, that he would make his grave with the rich in his death. He went on and he said, if these predictions are accurate here, it means that we're fighting a losing battle. The captain abruptly dismissed the meeting and asked Franz if he could borrow that Bible. A week later, he approached Franz and gave him an order that would save their lives. He told him to begin stockpiling gasoline so that when the the end of the war came, they'd have enough fuel to make it back home. So when Hitler was defeated and the time came for German troops to withdraw from Russia and flee to Germany and safety, Franz's company, Pioneer Park Company 699, had the fuel it needed to travel that long distance and make it safely home. Not one soldier was lost. God said four kingdoms. Then they divide. It all happened exactly as predicted. Now, I want to say this with respect, but if you are a skeptic, you've got to be seriously considering the claims of this book. How can you not? I'll say this too. If your faith is wavering, you've got to admit that there's something amazing, not only about this book, but about the one who inspired its writing. I hope you've noticed the pattern we've seen. And we know now that a person can have hope in a world that seems to be spinning out of control. How do I know that? Well, look at this. This is what happens next. Daniel 2, starting in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Rome divides into nations. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain. And the interpretation is, what's that word? Sure. I wanted you to notice, I want you to notice what we've seen. In this unprecedented time, a time of fear for so many, a time of doubt, a time of worry, a time of concern, a time of illness, a time of death, what we see is a pattern. Let me just share something with you here. 
I've been fortunate that the coronavirus has not come near my immediate family. Uh, I think I told you last night, I have family whose family has got sick, nothing serious, thankfully, but no, no one real close to me. So that just means that somehow we've been really fortunate. I'll tell you what, though, when people started making run, runs on the supermarkets, eh, I wasn't too worried at all. Not at all. Toilet paper disappearing. Oddly enough, I think I told you, 150 toilet paper manufacturers in the United States. We import 10% of our toilet paper. The last thing we're going to run out of is toilet paper. The last thing. But then when people started to say, maybe we're going to restrict visits to the supermarket. Yeah, I thought about that. I said, this sounds, this sounds ominous. Things are shutting down. I wondered, where are we going? But I remembered this. We've seen a pattern. God predicts the rise and fall of nations. And notice, things happen according to what he says. There's someone in charge. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He's not asleep at the wheel. And at the end of this rise and fall of nations, Jesus returns to the earth. We saw last night that we are getting closer. We see tonight corroborating evidence. It is true. There's someone we can trust. It's not time for fear. It's tough, but there's someone with you. Who is that? A good God. Someone who wants you to know him. Someone who wants you to look forward with confidence. The great news is there is a better day coming. Jesus is coming back. What's the pattern? The pattern is that God predicts and something happens in accordance with his word. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, they came right on time and just as God said they would. That last one, Rome, so mighty. You know, I've been in many parts of the world where the Romans have left evidence that they were there. Magnificent structures and temples and buildings, fabulous. Rome got around. It's hard to imagine that kingdom would ever pass away, but God said it will. And it did. God said it will divide. It divided. And what next? God says the end of all things, a glorious ending, the best thing you could ever look forward to. How does that relate to where you are right now? Let me tell you, whatever your circumstances, you know things are going to get better and a whole lot better. However, it seems the world is as you look around. You don't like the politicians. You don't like decisions being made. You are disturbed or perhaps unnerved. Things are going to work out okay in the end. I hope you're safe where you are. I certainly do. But we know one day we're going to live in a place where safety, not even a question. If you're dealing with health challenges, you know about that place. This book says the inhabitant thereof will never say, I am sick. Isn't that good news? The challenges of this world will be gone. And what does that world have for us? Better things than we could ever imagine. So I'd like to give you additional hope. 
you say, okay, the end is coming. Do I need to fear? No, you do not. How can I be ready for what's coming? How can I possibly be good enough? People have been asking that question for millennia, and it's the wrong question. You know why? Nowhere God says, you got to be good enough. You've got to be strong enough. Nowhere does he say that. Instead, he says that he will make his strength perfect in your weakness. He says that he would live his life in you and through you to will and to do for his good pleasure. How about that? When we say it's too tough, that's an opportunity for us to ask God to enter into our lives and do what we cannot. When we realize we are too weak, that's not a time to say, I'll try harder. That's a time to say, I'll yield my life so that God can do in my life what he wants to do. This one who set up kingdoms and took down kingdoms, if he's that mighty, surely he can lift up your life and keep you right where you need to be. See the pattern? What do we see? Giraffes, magnificent. Animals, plants, the things of nature, patterns. Look into the Bible, you see another one. An incredible pattern where God says, you can see my hand in history. And if you can discern my hand in history, then you know I'm going to lead you into the future. The question is simply this. Are you willing to be led? If you're not sure, would you think about it? In fact, would you pray about it? Would you ask God to make himself real? And would you take a Bible? If you don't have one, read it online. Take a Bible and read some of its pages and ask yourself if this isn't a book that can bless you. I spoke to a man and his wife one night. Um, she had said to me that he had all kinds of problems. Please talk to my husband. The husband, when we got together, admitted that he was a problematic sort of individual. He said, but I know what that book says. I just kind of moved on. Huh. I said, all right. The wife was very willing to tell me all about his problems. I said, no, let's leave the problems for now. Let's just talk about the solution. I said, would you do something for me? Maybe. Do you have a Bible? Yes, I do. Okay. Would you pick it up? Read it. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And when you find Jesus, just write down what he's like. Write it on a page. And when you figure you've got enough of it on a page, take that page and read it through and just ask yourself, do you want a person like Jesus in your life? A few days later, his wife passed by me in tears. She couldn't speak. I thought something was terribly wrong. His daughter stopped and said, he did what you said. He read in one of the Gospels, wrote down what he found, read it back, and he said, I'd be a fool not to have that man in my life. It was the best decision he'd ever made. I want to pray for you tonight as hope awakens in your heart. We've seen the hand of God in history. We're going to see the hand of God in our present and on to the brightest future we could imagine. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, the one who inhabits eternity, I am grateful that tonight your word has spoken to us. We've seen your hand in the past. 
We believe in your hand in the present. We expect to see you lead us to a glorious future. Let hope awaken in our hearts and lives, I pray. Bless us. Speak to our concerns. Keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. What an incredible presentation. As John has said, when we see a pattern, we have hope. What a set of remarkable predictions we've seen tonight in the book of Daniel. More than 2,500 years of human history given in around 140 words. Now, somebody knows the future. So tonight's free offer is a fantastic little ebook titled Promises of Peace, and you're really going to enjoy it. To get access, visit our website, hopeawakens.com.au. On our website, you'll also get access to tonight's study guide, where you can review and get more details on tonight's topic for yourself. Don't forget that if you have any questions about tonight's program, go to hopeawakens.com.au and post them there, and we'll do our best to answer them right before John's presentation each night. But if we can't get to them all here, someone will get back to you with answers and resources. So where are we going tomorrow night? You're not going to want to miss tomorrow night's topic, the unseen enemy. John is going to take us on a deep journey in biblical predictions that give us insight and hope. Make sure you tune in tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. We'll see you then. Good night. Good night.